Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 12th, we're studying Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 through 28. The book of Proverbs gives us more wisdom in Christ as a new section begins. This section is full of Proverbs of Solomon that have been copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. It's always fun times chatting with you. Fun times in the book of Proverbs today. We're here in chapter 25. Got a new section with the book of Proverbs starting today. The Proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So as we get started today, Pastor Hull, any introductory comments on what we've seen in Proverbs so far? What's there for us in this book? And then who are these men of Hezekiah? What's happening in this new section that we're starting today? Well, Proverbs, Solomon is the author inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you have these, it's like it's like the fortune that, that thus far, call it the fortune cookie book of the Old Testament, or am I the first one? I think some have mentioned that to me privately, at least. We're a little hesitant to say it, but I can see yeah. where you're coming from. Yeah, it's always good to say things that should be said in private publicly, because then everybody gets to join in the discussion of it. That's right. And uh, what I mean by, you know, fortune cookie is, you know, it gives you your lottery numbers. You go and you play it and you, no, I'm kidding. What it what it means is it's these little sayings, and sometimes there's passages in Proverbs. I mean, it'll have, you know, ga- not gaps, but blocks where all of the verses kind of have a theme to them. But with Proverbs, you find these little nuggets of verses that just really can help with you. That's where we get like to train up a child in the way they should go is from Proverbs. You have them talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have things like honoring. um, What is it like? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So it's, it's Proverbs can be a very nice book to just walk through and find these lovely verses that need unpacking. But really, when you hear them, it's like, yeah, this is this is just good, solid theology. It's almost like hymnody. A hymn can say a lot more in one stanza than someone could say in a whole sermon on a verse. So it's just fantastic. I think, you know, I've heard guests say that to me, fortune cookie theology, or that, that's not the right way of saying it, but it's like fortune cookies. And, yeah. and I will say, you know, that way of phrasing it maybe sounds a bit impious, but over the time that we've come through the book of Proverbs, I've become more comfortable seeing it as a book of pieces of wisdom that really can be taken on their own, that they don't have to stand in the context in the same way that you need to know where the feeding of the 5,000 falls in the Gospels. You need to know what comes before it. You need to know what comes after it to really put it in that context Proverbs mm-hmm. has a different sort of context. It has to be understood in the whole of Scripture and in the theology of justification by grace through faith. But right. you can just take one verse at times, look at it, and as you said, you've got a whole <laughs> sermon right there, 
even if what comes before it and what comes after it are totally disconnected from it topically or even sometimes it seems theologically, that's okay in the book of Proverbs. And, and I will say, as I've gone through the book during this series, I've become more comfortable saying that where I don't think I would have ahead of time. I'm not sure if I want to compare it to fortune cookies exactly, but I see what you're saying. Yes, and everyone has always... I mean, they look to me as the most pious guy in the room. So I understand the issue. Um, but no, what's also great about Proverbs is it's very practical. Um, you have all of these verses that are very, like we're going to hit one today with verse 20. So we'll talk about it more when we get to it. But it not only teaches you the faith, but also how to live it. It's very, um, not how to, but almost like... the. If you follow this, everything will be okay for you. It's it's literally, I mean, it's wisdom, right? That's the point of wisdom is you follow these things. I've been there before. Don't make this mistake. This is the way you should go instead. And it's just fantastic stuff. It is. And so one of the things that we see with the introduction to today's text, Proverbs 25, verse 1, says this, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Give us a, a bit of information on that. I think one of the things we see is that the wisdom of Solomon, and to put him in context, he's in the 900s BC. That's being remembered and written down multiple times through the ages, all the way down to Hezekiah, who's in the 700s, 600s BC. So mm -hmm. tell us a little about this introduction, Pastor Hall. Well, you look at Hezekiah, he is a righteous king. Between Solomon and Hezekiah, you have some very unrighteous men. That's where you get um, like Assyria attacking, God bringing punishment on the people of Israel. But with Hezekiah, you see this man who desires the good things of God. If I recall, even the Jews who would deny the, the messianic, like Jesus as the Messiah would say, really that verse where it says the virgin shall conceive isn't talking about Jesus, but about Hezekiah here. Am I correct with that? Uh, you might be. I think I think so. I'm not sure. That's Isaiah 7. When, when we get yeah. to the Isaiah series, I'll give that text to you. Oh, well, I appreciate it very much. I'll try to remember what I just said. Um, but they twist it. It doesn't say virgin. It says a young maiden will conceive and bear a son. And they make it that she will be the one that produces this righteous man. And Hezekiah is this righteous king who desires to go back to the faithful stuff. And that's why it's amazing you have in there, and this is, um, if anyone wants to know the context of who are these men of Hezekiah, one of the best places to go is is 2 Kings 18, where you have literally the Hezekiah reigns in Judah. And then I think it's verse 18, you get, and when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I'm so glad I'm a like a Scottish person. All of our names are easy to pronounce. Um, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So they come and they start copying down the Proverbs of Solomon because you copy down something that's important. <laughs> you copy down those things that not only tell you what the truth is, but also guide you in the truth. And It's a beautiful thing. It really is. And one of the, just as a and this is a bit of an aside, but I do think it's important to see that the text of the Old Testament is being used during the Old yes. Testament. It's not like the Old Testament just sort of appeared one day and Jesus quoted from it, but it's actually being used throughout this time. The Word of God is being used. It's being used 
orally. People are speaking it and hearing it, but they're actually also writing it down, which I think sometimes we just don't have that picture in our minds when it comes to the Old Testament. We we view ourselves as above them, more advanced technologically, and so we don't think about, no, they're reading and writing too. They're hearing the Word of God. They're making use of the Scriptures, just like we do today as Christians. Well, and that's the beautiful thing, is actually with copying it down, it's literally saying this is how it's handed down. You get the copy, you copy it down, you hand that down. Uh, One of the best books I've read on copying Scripture is, oh, what's this, Craig Parton's Religion on Trial. Have you read this book? I think I have. That's That's got several essays in it, doesn't it, on different topics? No, that's a different one. This one is is just a very small little book. It's maybe like 80 pages. And it's basically, since he's a lawyer, I think, oh, what is the one? The Defense Never Rests, I think, is the one one you're thinking thinking of. of. With this one, he, he says any religion should be able to be falsified, meaning you should be able to see that there's physical proof of something and put it on trial and see if it can be declared false. And he puts Christianity on trial and takes it through the ringer. And, of course, the end of the book is it's true. It's been taken through all these things. And one of the big things he does is he talks about the copies of the scriptures. And he compares it to things like Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Gallic, Gaelic. I never pronounced that right. And um, other things in ancient times like Cicero or Socrates or Plato. You know, how when's the next copy we have? And it's it's centuries later. Whereas with Scripture, it's not 500, 600 years difference. It's 40 years difference or 50 years difference of the next copy we have. Why? Because it's the next generation copying it down. It's not hundreds of years later. They, Like you mentioned with the Old Testament, they rediscovered it. This is – it's being handed down every generation like God uh, through Moses says in Deuteronomy that you give this to your children. You put it on your doorposts and on your walls, <laughs> and you hand it down. Right. And, and then, of course, there are examples in the Old Testament where the Word of God was forgotten. There's the example, it's under King Josiah, who comes after Hezekiah mm-hmm. ways, where they rediscover the Book of the Law, so they were missing a big chunk of it. But yeah. the, the, th- the nice thing that we see here is that the Lord is preserving His Word. He's doing it through the generations. And, and as you said very well, we can trust what we have in the Scriptures, that God has given to us His Word written down for us, so that we would believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And that's what the book of Proverbs is doing for us as well. With that, Pastor Hall, let's go ahead and start reading here in Proverbs chapter 25. What is there one, just one thing of as course. we go? Sorry. People can keep in mind as they see this, verse 1, I think we've grown immune to it or numb to it. Every time your pastor, at least in the divine service, reads the scriptures, he says, this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, thanks be to God. Because we're so grateful we have the Word. that I mean, we're, we're literally thanking God for talking to us. And these type of verses in Proverbs 25 can encourage us that let us not take advantage of that Word while we still have it. Let us read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. Let us copy it down. I mean, can you imagine if every Christian spent two hours a day just handwriting Scripture, like just sitting there writing Scripture down? Mm. I mean, we'd have it memorized. We'd be able to confess it wherever we're going. It would literally become the way we talk. And um, that can be a nice reminder when you're the divine service again. 
when your pastor says, this is the word of the Lord, it's not just so you can wake up for the next reading. It's so you can go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. This is literally God talking to me. Thanks be to him. Mm. So Thanks be to fun God. Times. For sure. Wisdom there, even in verse one, just the introduction to this section. The next several verses, uh, we said earlier, Pastor Hall, sometimes the verses seem a bit random, almost like fortune cookies. But the first several verses of this section do share a topic. They deal with the matter of kings. And so we're going to take a look at those verses for this side of the break. Verses 2 through 15 here in chapter 25. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. What your eyes have seen do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. We'll pause there. That was Proverbs 25, verses 2 through 15. Pastor Hall, we'll just start with the very first verse of this section, which I think is is one that is somewhat well-known. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. So a couple of things. First, the matter of glory is important in this verse. God's glory is to conceal or to hide, and the king's glory is to search things out. Why? Help us into this. Why is it the glory of God to conceal? Why the glory of kings to search for things? And then how do those two relate to each other? Well, God, Luther always talks about God's hidden and revealed will. God hides things that he may reveal them in the manner he desires to. And when we look at kings here, it becomes a very vocational thing. Solomon would always speak of the king's wisdom being research. You search things out. So where do we search out how to know God? We search in where God desires to be known, in Holy Scripture, in his word. And when we look at this text right here, it's beautiful. And I really, I mean, I focus more on that first part with God to conceal things. People don't want to think that God would hide something from them. But why does he do it is because you must be ready to receive it. He has to work on you to receive it properly uh, because well, it's like in Habakkuk, was it Habakkuk 2, even if I were to tell you what I am up to, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what I'm telling you. And how God works is that he reveals it in a way he knows we will be able to receive it for our own good. And it is the king's job to search those things out that he may hand those down, just like a pastor's vocation is to research the word of God, that he may hand things out properly 
rightly distinguishing law and gospel so that the hearer may be benefited from it, may be, not may be benefited, may benefit from it. So it sounds like when it says the glory of kings, perhaps we're not to think exclusively of the one who rules in the civil realm, but have a broader understanding of what the king was. And even, well, we could use David, Solomon's dad, as an example. Think of, think of how David searched things out for the sake of, of ruling his people wisely in a civil sense, but also in the way that he composed the Psalms, that he, he searched things out concerning the word of God to speak things theologically. Such that the the glory of kings and searching things out, looking to the word to direct, and then how did how did you say it to hand it out properly so that we can hear that word that we can receive what God wants us to have in a way that will benefit us rather than a way that will harm us. Exactly, and David is the perfect example there. He's a king yet at the same time, and then I mean ultimately the great king is Christ, who is the one who truly reveals what the will of God is. God and his hiddenness is revealed in the person of Jesus the Christ, the King of Kings. So well, and, and that's that's exactly where I was going to go with it too, was that with from David, if we see it in David, then we're going to see it to an even greater degree in Christ. And I think right. particularly the Gospel of John draws mm-hmm. this out because John really makes use of that word glory, particularly in his prologue in chapter one, where he talks about the the glory of God has, has been made known to us through the flesh of Jesus Christ. And and especially as you go through John, he's always, they're trying to make Jesus a king in their own way, on their mm-hmm. terms. And then you finally get the conclusion of it before Pilate. You know, it, my kingdom is not of this world, for if it was, <laughs> my servants will be fighting. Or, or with Peter in the garden, you know, put up your sword for I could call the legions of angels down to fight. It is not a kingdom of this world. It's not this. Not that this place doesn't matter. We delight in the gifts God gives us here, but they're always in perspective. They are always secondary to the gifts that are eternal. And and in that way, then we, I think this takes us finally to the cross. That's where the glory of God is ultimately revealed in the way that He wants Himself to be known. And I I guess it's in John's Gospel too, where you have the sign that's over Jesus. Mm-hmm. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What an unexpected place for a king to be found, and yet that's precisely where God wants you to see him reigning as king as he dies to save you. Yeah, and then you have Pilate's response. What is it? Gregata? I can't pronounce Greek correctly. I should never try to do it. What I have written, I have written. And it even gets back to this with copying down God's word being written down that you may see it and know it. He is the king of the Jews, but he's even more, he's, he's the king of, of those who are uh, forgiven, the saints. He is their king. And, it's, it's, and where does he reign? In suffering and weakness, things the world does not comprehend and believe to be virtuous things. Which is why, then, you need someone to search it out and give it to you properly. Think of how St. Paul speaks of the wisdom of God and the strength of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We would look at the cross and see foolishness and weakness, but God Mm -hmm. there gives us his wisdom and strength. And the only way that you'll know that that's really wisdom and strength is if someone preaches it to you. If someone has proclaimed it to you in Christ, you need that 
that one to search it out and give it to you so that you can receive it, as you said at the beginning, in faith. Correct. I mean, you get that with Paul in Romans 10. You get that with Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, God sending one. Or even take a Paul's second missionary journey. He tries going all these places in Turkey. God stops him and sends him to Europe. And if it was not for that, <laughs> would Christianity gone to Europe with his trip to Macedonia? can't remember what chapter that is in Acts, but it's in Acts. He has Luke and Silas along with him. It's a fun time. Um, but it's God doesn't work in the way we think he should. But what is it when we have a prayer for those who have died? His ways are not our ways, nor is, his, nor is his will our will. Yet in his loving kindness, he has brought this person to himself in paradise. Everything works for good to those who love God, meaning those who are in Christ, those who are forgiven. And if we tried comprehending why things happen the way they do, we think God's unfair. So we must always live with God, not according to our experiences, but according to his promise and his word. And that's that's our certainty, is what the Lord says. Pastor, we could probably keep going on that particular verse, but just knowing that we've got a lot of text, and there's, there's other hmm. great stuff here, let's jump forward a little bit in the text to verses 6 and the first part of 7, as it's numbered here. Oh, yes. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Now, <laughs> certainly that's that's wonderful wisdom in terms of, as you said earlier, very practical. I mean, this makes sense. Don't assume for yourself the position of, mm. of greatness. Assume for yourself a lower position and be told, come, that sounds like something Jesus said too, doesn't it? I think so, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> and, and it's beautiful because Jesus talks all the time about humility being humbled. Be, and I've always, I started preaching, instead of saying be humbled, I say be humiliated. And I don't think people get humbleness that much anymore, but they understand being humiliated. It is you don't say anything. It's like if you're talking, it's, uh, it's like college football's back now. And uh, I, I'm in a strange land. I'm a Georgia football fan, UGA Bulldogs, and yet I live amongst Aggies and Longhorns and all these things. And what was it? Two years ago, I talked a big game that Georgia was going to clobber the University of Texas. They were going to annihilate them. But then Matthew McConaughey showed up at the game, and the Texas, the Longhorns beat the tar out of the Bulldogs. And I showed up to church the next day humiliated. I wasn't saying anything. I was praying no one say anything. And then, of course, I have this lovely, lovely lady named Mary Jo Voidel. She's so sweet, this little, little dear lady. She walks by. She never says anything mean. And she goes, how'd those dogs go past her with a hook em horn sign? And I was like, ah. And it humiliated me. It brought me low. And the point is, in Christ, he lifts those up who are humiliated by the law. The law humbles us. It shows us that we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to claim. We we don't present anything to the Father. It is all gift. Um, Oswald Beyer talks this way a lot with theology, of this gift theology. And of course, he gets that from Luther. Luther saying that all, everything is not our property, our ownership. It is gift to us. And why is it better to have that lower place that we may receive the greater thing? The law shows us who we are, puts us in our place, puts us at the kid table so that we can be invited up to the big kid, the big people table, even though it's not as fun. I wish I could go back to the kid table again. It's a lot better time. Um, but 
Christ brings us up to the greater place in his grace and mercy. I, I, the other place that, that my mind goes with this is the Magnificat. Mary's mm, song. Yes. She, in, in her song there, she really highlights this theme that God brings down the mighty and he exalts those, as I think it's usually translated, those of humble estate, or, or maybe as, as you're suggesting, exalts those who are humiliated. Yes. Well, and that's why it gets back to earlier, why this has to be researched and revealed. You have a lot right now. I was watching a clip where someone used the Magnificat to say why there should be uprisings right now and the poor should annihilate the rich and you should have this reversal in society. It's like, well, that's not what's happening here. Jesus didn't come to do a reversal of society. That's why Judas couldn't stand him. That's why he had people reject him, because he wasn't coming to set up an earthly revival, an earthly reversal. He came to reverse condemnation into salvation, sin into forgiveness, death into life. And that's the point of it all, is it comes down to he wants you to be saved eternally, that you may live eternally. Um, so you always, like you mentioned earlier— we can't read these things without justification by faith in Christ alone as the guiding principle. It has to be there, or you completely <laughs> misunderstand it and misuse it. Right, and that's what makes Solomon's Proverbs uniquely Christian, <laughs> as opposed to the wisdom of the world, which I'm sure there's any number of secular writers that would say something very similar to verses 6 and 7. It It's better not to... You know, just walk up to the president of the United States, for example, lest you be cast away. I mean, that makes sense from an earthly perspective. But we need that background of justification by grace through faith to understand it in the fullest sense that Solomon gives it to us. This is talking finally about our standing before God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Exactly. Because, I mean, you could read Marcus Aurelius's meditations and get some similar statements. And I was actually having a conversation with a church member about that. And they said, you know, to understand the Bible, it's really good to understand things like stoicism. I said, mm, not really. I said, it's not a bad thing to read that stuff. I'm, I, uh, classics are amazing. Read them and you understand Western civilization. But it's not going to teach you to know Christ better. You're not going to find the gospel in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Um, it's, it's, you, you may find God there. You may find his wrath or his law or his, his judgment there, but you're not going to find the only place you find the God of mercy is in the death and resurrection of Jesus and how it is revealed in Holy Scripture. Yeah, and is, is that God of mercy who is being revealed for us here in the book of Proverbs? We're going to take a short break here on Sharp Iron on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 12th. We're studying Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 through 28 with Pastor Chris Hull. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Remember, if we missed something you really wanted to hear more about, give us a call, 314-996-1542. That's a listener comment line. Leave a message there or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Let me know what we missed and you want to hear more about. I'll be recording some short podcast material to help you sharpen your faith in Christ through the book of Proverbs. Pastor Hull, as we continue this morning here in Proverbs 25, verse 15, the very last verse I read for the previous half of the program, also deals with the matter of rulers, and it has some pretty vivid imagery here. Verse 15 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Take us into that. It's it's humble speech. It's It's not... No one wants to listen to you if you come in guns blazing, acting as if you own the place when you when you pound the chest, even if you are angry, even if you are upset um, and you rush into an argument, they will you're automatically shut down. They're not going to listen to you. Mm. Having patience, slowly speaking, humbly speaking, softly speaking shows that your confidence isn't in your emotions, but your confidence is in the content of what you're saying, that what you actually are saying means something. When people see you having a state about you, that you're not having to lose your cool all the time to get your way, but instead you let the words do the work. Mm. Uh, It's not to say never have emotion, never have feeling, but when you're trying to persuade somebody, which is what we see here in verse 15, if the argument won't, if the words won't persuade them, then no amount of emotionalism or anger or frustration is going to do the trick. Yeah, it is a, the soft tongue breaking a bone is a pretty vivid image to think about the strength of just a word, that a word does have that kind of power. And, and even a soft word, one spoken, as you said, in confidence because of what the word is, not because of the force with which it is spoken or the emotion that lies behind it, but simply because the word is good, the word is true. Let the word do the work. And again, there's earthly wisdom in that, in the way that we would, say, approach our rulers here on earth, that perhaps anger toward them and vitriol toward the other side, I'm going to use air quotes there, Pastor all the other side, Maybe that's not actually going to persuade anybody. But a soft tongue, confidence in the words that you speak, spoken softly, that might actually have more effect than some of the discourse we see in our world today. Well, and this is why I believe it was President Harrison said it a few years ago at a convention. He said, I now take multiple nights to sleep on something so I can let the words have effect rather than my emotions taking over. And that's patience. We we think we have to rush into something and we allow that anxiety to take over. And when someone's anxious, they're not calm and reserved. (laughs) They they respond with anger or outbursts because they're scared. The reality is in Christ, we're not scared. In Christ, we have confidence. We have assurance. And there's no reason to dread, to fear, and therefore no reason to get angry. Instead, we can be joyful and patient and humble all life long because we know where we're going when we die. 
when it comes to this verse, I also, I think there's something to be said here for the way that we would approach the Lord in prayer. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's two, two examples that come to my mind from the Gospels that I think work in tandem. So one is the account in Matthew 15, and I think it's recorded at least in Mark as well, of the Canaanite woman who comes mm-hmm. to Jesus and who has a, a demon-possessed daughter, and she keeps imploring him. And, and I suppose by the end of that account, you might accuse her of having a sharp tongue rather than a soft tongue. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. She, she speaks, you know, she says to Jesus, yeah, Lord, the dogs eat the crumbs. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But I, I think even there, I, I don't know, it's not the sharpness of her tongue, but the confidence, as no. you said, yeah. of the word. Confidence in knowing who Jesus is. So that's that's one example. I, and I'm going to let you respond, Pastor Earl. The other example is in, and this is a parable that Jesus tells, is in Luke 18. The mm. the parable of it's usually called the persistent widow, the one who, mm-hmm. who goes before the unrighteous judge, and she simply right, just keeps right. presenting her case over and over. And even an unrighteous judge responds, <laughs> "How much more will our heavenly Father, who is righteous, give to us that which is good for us?" I'll let you take it from there. Well, no, even with the the Canaanite woman. She just confesses who she is. The, he doesn't get the food of the dog. She's like, you're right. I am a dog. <laughs> and even I get a piece of food. And that's the reality is it's a soft tongue that just confesses who we are, who God says we are. His law says we're a sinner. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. It's like when I tell my children, you know why mom and dad get mad is when you talk back and try to make excuses for what you did. If you just say, I'm sorry, I'm going to try better. We don't get mad. We get upset because you fight it, and we're trying to raise you to be a good person that lives sacrificially for others. But if you're constantly making excuses for yourself all the time, you're not sacrificial. You are selfish. And when we look at the Canaanite woman, she comes to God for her daughter. She says, and that's Luther uses the Canaanite woman uh, to comfort women who have had miscarriages. You know, Christ heals her daughter by the petitions of her mother. And that's why we pray for women who are pregnant. I know at our church, we bless the wombs. We bless the children in the womb at Zion. Do you all do that at all? Uh, I've not. I've not done that one. I've not seen it done either, to be honest. Yeah, we do. We have like seven pregnant women right now. COVID babies, I guess you could say, Um, you know, but when, when the pregnant women come up to receive the sacrament, we will give them a blessing that God be merciful on this child and keep them safely and securely in the righteousness of Christ as they're brought securely to the waters of holy baptism. And the child hears, the mother hears, they pray, we pray, and it's just confessing who we are. We're not saved because of our nationality or we're not saved because of our works. We're saved by mercy. We're saved by grace through faith. And we're saved by Christ and his word. And when you look at these two different women, the widow and the Canaanite woman, they humbly petition. They know they can't make the decision. They know they can't make it work. They must get it from someone else. And therefore, there's the humility there. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's the the same humility that we were talking about earlier, knowing who you are before God and letting him be the one to exalt you and to save you in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's right. let's keep reading here in Proverbs chapter 25, Pastor Hull. We're picking up again in verse 16 now through the end of the chapter. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. 
Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, or a sword, or a sharp arrow. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue angry looks. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That is the rest of Proverbs 25, verses 16 through 28. Pastor, there's there's so much here. Every time I do this, oh, yeah. every time I read a chunk of Proverbs, I, I start to realize we could have spent the whole episode on two verses. <laughs> yep, yep. But, but we won't. And and so I I think I know I know you know again if we miss something give us a call email let me know I'm gonna go ahead and, and push us forward to verse twenty because you mentioned that there's there's some comments you'd like to make on that whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda we've got some pretty vivid imagery here again what's Solomon giving us well it, it's bearing with a person uh, have you ever read the the book. Don't never sing songs to a a heavy heart. Have you? I I have seen not. This? Pastor Hill, you you it's, always ask me if I've read things or. Seen I don't things, mean to embarrass Brother Apple. You're just such okay. a smart man. I assume. I just. These things. I just. So, I guess we read different things. That's okay. I guess so. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe I I read the wrong stuff. I don't know. Uh, but it's basically it's a practical book on caring for people who are struggling, caring for people who are in grief and things like this. And when you have someone grieving someone struggling, it's not your job to go in and try to just fix them. It's your vocation to suffer with them, to bear the burden with them, to bear the cross with them. They've lost a loved one. They've lost a spouse. They've lost a child. Like if one of my children died tragically in an accident, I don't need someone to come over. And not that I don't want company, but I don't need someone to come over to make me who I was before that. It's like if when your child dies, you have your arm chopped off. You can't just grow it back again. It's not someone else's vocation or our vocation to get you better. It's our vocation to sit there and say, we'll suffer this together. That doesn't mean there isn't joy there. There isn't gladness there. There isn't bliss there. What it means is it's joy in the resurrection, joy in eternal life, joy in the forgiveness of our sins and in Christ. Um, but not singing a song to a heavy heart means don't go in trying to get the person to change so you can feel better about yourself. Look, I got them back out again. That doesn't matter. What matters is you are there for your neighbor when God desires you to be. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And, and of course, that is that is followed. You know, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. But but notice that it's when one is suffering, we suffer with them. And I think that's 
I think that's difficult for us. That's not our first move. Our first move is to come in with with words that we want to comfort, no doubt. But sometimes we we're, we don't take that first step of suffering with the person, of letting grief be grief, of acknowledging the pain that death has in fact caused, and having that pain with that person, and and yet the joy, the comfort that is there at the same time. I think you know Saint Paul in, in Philippians chapter four, he says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I will say, rejoice. But but he continues that this sort of rejoicing isn't. It's not what what this proverb is talking about that we would just come in, sort of whistling a happy tune, and that mm-hmm. somehow makes it better. But it is a a joy. In fact, a, a comfort might be a better way of thinking about it. That's found, as you said, in the resurrection, and and sometimes we do. We have to we have to hold ourselves back from wanting to fix it, <laughs> and, and recognize that ultimately the only fixing that is to be done is the fixing that Christ has done for us in the resurrection, and and we suffer together right now as we together wait for that final mm-hmm. ultimate joy. Exactly. Exactly. I don't have anything to add to that. That's exactly it. Perfect. Ah. Well, I'm, I'm glad. You I did. love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check out that book, Pastor Hull. So the next time one. next time you're coming through Smithville, drop it off, okay? I will, I will. All right. Ah, ah. Let's 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 keep going then to the very next two verses, because these are verses that get quoted by Paul in the New Testament. Verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Oh, there's there's tons of things we could say here, Pastor Hall. One is one is I think to notice that when Jesus says love your enemies in the Gospels, that's not something new. This is something that is in the Old Testament. the The other thing that that always strikes me in this verse is is verse twenty two that ah, mm. I'm I'm going to do these good things for my enemy so that I can actually heap burning coals on his head. I, I don't think that's actually what Solomon means. Um, but it, but it might be a way that we we would say, "Ha, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you by being nice to you or something like that." Take us into these verses, Pastor. L. Well, no, it's beautiful, and you know, if I recall, Paul adds in Romans, you know, "Vengeance is mine," declares the Lord. It is for God to punish. It's not for us to punish. And I tell people this all the time: Christ has freed you from being angry with your neighbor. You're not going to get anything out of it. It's being angry with your neighbor is like drinking poison and expecting them to die, right? You've heard that, mm. you know, little proverb. proverb. Saying, yeah, that's right. You know, and but that's how it is. It's I'm going to be so mad at you, but what, what's it going to do? It does nothing. It's like worrying. It's like a rocking chair. You do all the work and you go nowhere. And the reality is with these verses, Christ has freed you just to love your neighbor. And, and even there is the reward. And I think that's one of the problems with Lutherans. The prosperity gospel has, has grasped the reward language from us. And they've taken it like, okay, God will, God will reward you in accordance with what you do here. And we've allowed the prosperity gospel guys to take this reward language. Instead of this reality that God does reward you, he gives you gifts. He, he encourages you and strengthens you. Everything God gives you in this life is meant to sustain you and nourish you on your pilgrimage to paradise. He gives you things to strengthen that, either things that deter you, he prevents you from doing something, or things that build you up, things that encourage you. Even the gift of forgiving your neighbor, which really makes people mad when you just forgive them. You know, they hate that. 
some people would be like, well, what is there to forgive? Well, something, because I'm forgiving you. Uh, Luther makes the point of the large catechism that it is a gift of faith, that being able and actually forgiving your neighbor strengthens your faith because you know that you are forgiven. And it's a blessed thing. So it's not so we can just get at our neighbor. Why we do these things is it nourishes our faith as well and benefits them as a fruit of faith. Mm. Now, forgiveness is a is an offensive thing, which I think is is what verse twenty two is is getting at at least in part. Yeah, I don't I don't know if if people actually do go to the grocery store anymore now that COVID's here. But the next time you're at the grocery store and someone's checking you out and they like they drop one of your grocery items and they say, "I'm yeah. sorry." Tell them, I forgive you, and, yeah. and see if they don't look at you a little funny, because we, we don't think that way, that, you know, like, mm. oh, I don't, I don't really need forgiveness. And so forgiveness can be a, a very offensive thing. That's, that's how our nature responds to it, our sinful nature does. And, and I think that's, I mean, part of, so part of what Solomon is getting is not that, hey, you're going to get them back. This is the real way to get them back, is, is by doing this, but, but rather an acknowledgement of that offensiveness of forgiveness. And then I, the reward language is, is really important, that, that even if it doesn't look like you have a reward in this life, which, as you said, I don't think you're denying that. You might get a reward in this life. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a reality. We shouldn't forget that as we go through the Proverbs. But even if you don't, the Lord will reward you, and, and that reward comes by his grace on the last day in the resurrection of the dead. Exactly. And that's the context you keep with it. And then you see the rewards that come your way in this life. So, and that, that's why I almost wish uh, CPH or someone would do claiming words from the prosperity gospel, claiming them back and getting them back because we've allowed a lot of things to be abused. And then we just don't preach about it. We avoid those words. They're trigger words like reward. And it's like, well, no, you see reward throughout it. Well, look at Revelation. Their good works will follow them. I mean, you see these things there. And um, God says them for a reason. And we have to claim them back, make them ours again, so that the righteous saints can be comforted by them. Go ahead and write that book for us, Pastor Hull. Yeah, right. No, no, no. That's why I said CPH can do it. Then get one of the professors. Get John Pless to do it. He, he hammers out books within like a week. So be a fun time. For sure. Let's take a look at, at verse 25. We've got about eight minutes left here, Pastor Hall. And again, we could spend so much time on any one of these verses. Verse 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. I think this is another one of those verses that works on multiple levels, both here in an earthly sense and especially in a heavenly sense. Take us into verse 25. Well, right when I read this, I think of, what is it, Matthew 5, or what, I can't remember, I think it's 8 or 9. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Luther makes the point in a lot of his writings, only the terrified conscience desires to hear the words of absolution. Um, when we look at a thirsting soul, one who desires God, one who knows there's so you take that humility language that's gone through this. It's one who is humbled, one who knows it, one who it just needs to be refreshed. It's that good news from a far country. And when we think good news from a far country, I think we've lost the this understanding. I, I think of when I was in Madagascar almost 10, over 10 years ago, they didn't have internet there. So my wife literally didn't hear from me for a week and a half, didn't hear from me. 
And the only news she got was looking at French news in Madagascar. So she had no clue. There's a civil war going on. They were blowing places up. There was a coup. They overthrew the president. She has no clue where I am until she got an email from uh, Professor Pless that said, everyone's okay. We're going to be back in the States tomorrow morning. And she had a sigh of relief. When you have no good news and you finally get it, and that far off country is that greater country from where Christ came, who came from heaven to help us. He's come down with the good news. That you, and that's what the divine service is. I said it this past Sunday, we were waiting for people to come. I said, we're not, we're not doing anything except offering eternal life and heaven on earth. That's all that's happening here. But it is. Heaven is on earth every Sunday morning. Heaven's on earth every time there's a service at your church. Why wouldn't you want to be there? What's more important than being there? You got a loud kid. Guess what? There's going to be loud kids in heaven. It's going to be awesome. It, 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 you, you, you're tired. Well, in heaven, you have eternal rest. And guess what? You're not going to get sustained trying to go out another week without knowing that Christ loves you, without knowing that good news for you. But only when you know you need it do you desire to have it. This verse of the, the good news from a far country— brings to my mind Isaiah 52, the gospel Mm. for the day of Christmas. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. You know, I think, and even Isaiah preached during the time of Hezekiah when these Proverbs are being copied. So I, Mm. I, I mean, I just think that they fit so well together. But imagine someone looking out over the mountains waiting for the news. And the image that you gave of, of your time in Madagascar, I think, is perfect, that you're, you're longing for this news. What is this news going to be? So much so that when you just see the feet of that messenger, here it mm-hmm. is. Here's the good news. And, of course, the good news in Isaiah 52 is that your God reigns. Your God is yeah. king, which is just— fantastic news. And you can see why that would come at Christmas. Here is the King of Kings born for you and for me. That, that's that's the good news that, that from the far country that we're waiting from. The other, the other thing that comes to my mind is the, is the hymn, Wake, Awake, for Night is Flying. Oh, yes, yes. Which, I don't know if you've done a hymn sing, her sing on this one yet, Pastor Hall. Maybe no, toward but, the end oh. of the church year. You need we're to going do to. This. I was talking with Lene about that because it's one of her favorites, and we're going to be doing it because that is the hymn for the last Sunday of the church year. So we're going to be doing that that Sunday before that Wednesday before the last Sunday of the church year. We'll be doing that one. So thank it, you for that plug. I appreciate it. No, no problem. And but I, the, the image yeah. there, you know, that that Zion is just waiting for this news. We as the church are waiting with great anticipation for our Lord to return, and just the utter joy that is there in that hymn upon the return of Christ. I, I don't I don't know about yeah. you, Pastor Hall, but I, I anticipate that when the Lord returns, we will be singing that hymn on that day. Oh, yeah. I, I tell people, go to church on Sunday as if Jesus is going to come back on Sunday. You know, because if you knew he was going to, because he is there. You and I confess it in word and sacrament. Christ is present with us to forgive us. But if you know he's going to be there, and then I think I thought about it the other day. I'm like, some people don't want him to be there, though, because they're kind of scared. What's he going to say? Is he going to be mad at me? And the answer is no. He's not mad at you. He came to save you. Uh, he says it in, in John 12. I, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. I came to save you. And I forgive you and I love you. You're mine. That's what he's coming to tell you. He's not coming to punish you. He's coming to give you good stuff. And, and that's what has to ring out in the church, because that's what the old Adam can't comprehend. He hates it. 
but the new man lives by it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, he's he's come he's come to save even you, even you sinner that you are. You know, good news from a far country, cold water to a thirsty soul brings to mind in John four, the mm-hmm. Samaritan woman. There's there's good news from a far country. Jesus comes from Judea to speak good news in Samaria to give cold water to a thirsty soul, and not water that will leave one thirsting again, but water that wells up as a spring unto eternal life. Pastor Hall, we've got, got about two minutes here to wrap things up this morning. I think that's a good place to to bring it to a close. It's, I agree with you. It is a good place to bring it to a close. And why I say that is it's gospel. It's all for you. It's the gift of Christ for you. It is cold water that, especially if you dwell in Southeast Texas, is the greatest gift you can have (laughs) when you're just about to pass out. It's what you need, and what you need is absolution, and it's free. There's no charge to it because the bill's been paid in full in the blood of Christ on the cross. Praise the Lord for that. Pastor Chris Hull is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs 25, verses 1 through 28. Pastor Hull, thanks for being our guest today. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. Always a fun time with you. Cold water to a thirsty soul. That is the gospel. That is the cold water. The good news that Christ is for you. He has not come to condemn you, but he has come to save you. And he has done that through his death and resurrection, delivered to you in word and sacrament on Sunday morning for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.